are listening to an audio sermon from Fort William Baptist Church. We are located in Thunder Bay, Ontario. To find out more about us, please visit www.fortwilliambaptistchurch.com. Thank you for joining us today. This morning we get to go back to the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to do things a little bit different this morning. Instead of just one text and working through it, we're going to look at three texts this morning. So the first text, you're going to have to put your finger in several spots this morning, is Mark chapter 8, verse 31. So when you find it, put your finger there. The second text is Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 32. And the third and last text is Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 34. You'll notice a pattern. These are Jesus' passion predictions. So let's start this morning. Let's hear God's word. Mark chapter 8, verse 31. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Mark chapter 9, verse 30 through 32. They went on from there and passed through, the re- through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Last text, Mark chapter 10, verse 32 to 34. And they were on the road, going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit upon him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise." Let's pray again. Oh, Father, won't you now bless the reading and the preaching of your word. Make it beneficial to our hearts. We pray, give us faith now that we might see. Give us clear vision that we might understand. We pray this in your son's good name. Amen. So as we read these passion predictions from the mouth of Jesus, we have to wrestle with this reality. Whatever we are to to make of the Christian religion must by necessity negotiate the cross of Christ. Even more, whatever we are to make of the gospel of Mark and this character Jesus, we have to negotiate the cross of Christ. We have to understand it. And this should make sense to us as Christians, as people who are acquainted with the scriptures, because the, the scriptures place the cross at the center of absolutely everything. And we can just spend a minute tracing this out for ourselves. The scriptures teach that the cross ought to be at the center of our proclamation, our preaching. 
The Apostle Paul confirms this for us. He says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The cross ought to lie at the very center of our understanding of salvation. The Apostle Peter speaks to us. He says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. The cross ought to lie at the very center of our reading of the Scriptures. From Genesis to Revelation, Jesus teaches us, He says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And the cross ought to be at the center of our understanding of history, the, the broad sweep of human movement. John's apocalyptic vision in Revelation chapter 5 guides the way for us. John says, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And the Gospel of Mark confirms the cross stands at the very center of how we are to live our lives. There are ethical ramifications to the cross. Jesus speaks to us. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So here we see the, the cross stands at the center of all things. And as we consider the scriptures this morning, the cross has left an imprint upon us, even as we live some 2,000 years after the cross and its historical accomplishment. We find the cross in our, our creeds. We find the cross in our architecture. Some of us even wear the cross on our bodies. We, we sing of the cross in our songs, and we, we preach of the cross in our sermons. And as we consider the, consider the centrality of the cross to all things in the scriptures and even in our own lives, the necessary question has to be asked. What is this cross all about? What is the meaning of the cross of Christ? What was achieved in the cross of Christ? And our aim this morning is to find specific answers to these questions from the three passion predictions that we find in chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10. And so we've been working the last few months, working through chapters 8, 9, and 10. And what these chapters convey is an intense journey sequence. The sequence starts in, in the regions of Galilee, and Jesus is working his way south a bit circuitously, but he's working his way towards a, a, a geographical spot. He's working his way towards Jerusalem. And so there's this movement of geography, but there's a more important movement in these chapters. It's a, a theological movement. Jesus and his men are on a theological journey. Jesus is teaching his men his identity and his mission as they approach Jerusalem. And this theological journey that we find in chapters 8, 9, and 10 begins in chapter 8, verses 27 and 28. And here Jesus turns his attention to his disciples, these men who have been following him, and he starts asking them a bunch of questions. He asks, who do people say that I am? And the disciples consider Jesus' question, and they, they report to Jesus the rumors that they have been hearing. Some say this, others say this. And then, then Jesus, not content with this, looks at his men and he says, but who do you say that I am? And it's here with this question hanging out there in the air that, that Peter gives his landmark confession. He, he looks at Jesus and he says before the disciples, you are the Christ. And this is, this is great progress in the disciples' movement. Finally, they're piercing the significance of Jesus, who he is. You are the Christ. While we can say this is a, a significant step for these disciples, we also, as readers of Mark's gospel, we've spent a lot of time with these men. 
We, we know these men. We've seen their warts. We've seen their failings. We've seen their, their, few, their fears. And so as we hear Peter's words, you are the Christ, we realize even though he says this, there's so much work to be done in these men's hearts and in their minds. And this is the work that Jesus sets himself to in, in chapters 8 through 10. What Jesus does here is he begins an intensive teaching regimen on his Messiahship and his mission. And as we travel with Jesus in these three chapters, there is this refrain repeated again and again and again in the ears of these men. Jesus is saying to them, the Son of Man must suffer. The Son of Man is going to be delivered. The Son of Man will be killed. The Son of Man will rise again from the dead on the third day. And as we travel with Jesus, the point becomes so clear. What matters the most for these men is that they understand what Jesus is going to do, that he is going to a cross, that they understand what this cross actually means for them. And so as we consider these passion predictions for ourselves this morning, the three of them, they serve us as a a theological manual for what's going to happen to Jesus later in Mark's gospel. In chapters 14, 15, and 16, Jesus is going to be tried, he's going to be condemned, he's going to be killed, and then he's going to rise again. And these these three passion predictions help us make sense of those later stories. And so we can think of these passion predictions like an owner's manual, and we can just use a a really simple illustration to help us here. So you're, you're driving in your car. You're looking at the road, and all of a sudden you look down and you see flashing lights on your your dashboard. Well, what do you do? Well, you probably should pull over, and then you need to figure out what those lights mean. And and to do that, you need to grab your owner's manual, at least most of us need to, and, and consider and decipher what these flashing lights mean. And when you open up your owner's manual, the owner's manual will guide you and help you understand what's going on. It will tell you if your car has lost a a sensor, if your tire pressure is lower, or if your car is actually going to overheat. And in the same way, these passion predictions allow us to make sense of the many details and events that we're going to be bombarded with at the end of Mark's story when we enter into Jerusalem with Jesus. So at the end of Mark's story, we're going to enter into Jerusalem with Jesus, and there's going to be all of these flashing lights and signals before us, and we have to make sense of them. And Jesus here, in these three passion predictions, helps us. He gives us the owner's manual. He's saying if you get these passion predictions, you understand them, you're going to know exactly what's going on in Jerusalem. So this morning, we're going to look at Jesus' owner's manual for the cross, and we're, we're going to find three pieces of crucial information that we have to look at in this owner's manual, and they are these. First, we're going to look at the, the subject of the cross. Second, we're going to look at the, the plan of the cross, and then finally, we're going to look at the, act, at the activity of the cross. So we can begin our work on this owner's manual that Jesus gives us. And our our first work in opening up this owner's manual is to identify the subject of the cross. And this should actually be a really easy question to answer. It's the Sunday school answer. It's, It's Jesus who goes to the cross, right? It's Jesus who suffers and dies and who will rise again on the third day. But we want to press in on this matter a bit more and ask, well, well, who is this Jesus who goes to the cross? So throughout the story, Mark has been teaching us about the identity of Jesus. He's been very keen to do this, and he has done this by weaving together Old Testament quotations so that we might with clarity get who this Jesus is. 
So we can go all the way back to chapter 1. And in chapter 1, after Jesus' baptism, we hear this booming voice from heaven. It's the Father speaking to the Son. And the Father says this, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And so we can ask the Father, well, who is this Jesus? And the Father here is quoting two Old Testament passages. He is quoting from Psalm chapter 2, which says, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And what the Father is saying, he's answering our question. He's saying, this Jesus, he is the king of Israel. And the Father quotes from another passage, Isaiah chapter 43, which says, Behold my servant, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. And what the Father is saying, he's answering our question, this Jesus is the servant of God. As we move on in Mark's narrative, Jesus himself actually begins to reveal his identity. And and Jesus' favorite description of himself is what? The Son of Man. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath, Jesus declares. And and what Jesus is saying is he's picking up on Daniel chapter 7, this old prophecy which says... And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And so we have some answers to who is this Jesus who goes to the cross. So we need to take a step back from all of this and begin to assess this. The one who goes to the cross, the one who's going to suffer and die, is the king of Israel, the servant of God, The Son of Man. And as we pick up these titles and try to understand them and compare them, we we cannot help but to notice that there are are differences between all of these titles. As we think about it, these titles all originate from different parts of the Old Testament. One of these titles comes from the book of Psalms. The other comes from the the book of Isaiah. Another comes from that strange book, the book of, of Daniel. Even where all of these titles originate from vastly different time periods and and circumstances. But as we hold up these titles and examine them and compare them closely, even with all of these differences, we find a similarity in them. They all point to the representative nature of Jesus' identity. We can think about this. The king of Psalm 2 does what? Well, he rules and shepherds a people. We can think about the servant of Isaiah 43. Who does he serve? Well, he serves God, yes, but in serving God, he actually serves a people. We can think about the Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7. He he inherits a, a dominion, a kingdom, but who inhabits his kingdom, his dominion? Well, it's a people. And So Mark is helping us out here. He's teaching us Jesus' identity. And so we can ask, well, what does this mean for our understanding of the cross? Well, it means that when Jesus went to the cross, when he suffered and dined there, he did not do so as a private person. Rather, he went to the cross as a representative of a people, or better yet, he went to the cross on behalf of a people. The identity of Jesus makes all the difference. If Jesus were merely a private person, the cross would just be another sad event recorded in human history that just bears down upon Jesus. The cross would just be another tragedy of injustice that involves only Jesus. But because of Jesus' identity, he is the king of Israel, he is the servant of God, he is the the son of man. His suffering, his cross, his death actually means something for those who belong to him. So we can say this. 
For, for those who belong to Jesus by faith, who are, are numbered among his people, we don't look to the cross as detached observers. Rather, the, the nature of Jesus' identity, he, he represents us, drives the cross right into our hearts. It makes the cross matter for us. When we read the Passion account, we don't say this. There goes the King of Israel. There goes the servant of God. There goes the Son of Man. Rather, we say something more personal. We say something more meaningful. We say, there goes my King to the cross. There goes the one who has served me to the cross. There goes the Son of Man to whom I belong. The identity of Jesus makes the cross actually mean something for us. And because of Jesus' identity, we can actually say the cross belongs to us. We can actually take up Isaiah's words and sing them as our own. Because we belong to King Jesus, because we belong to the servant, because we belong to the Son of Man, we say with Isaiah, he bore our griefs, he carried our sorrows, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. This means something for me because of who Jesus is. Even more because of Jesus' identity, we can actually look at the cross and his death and say, what happened to Jesus has actually happened to me. What happened to Jesus there has radically changed me as a person. We can say with the Apostle Paul, we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. So what Jesus is doing in these passion predictions is he's, he's teaching us how to understand what's going to happen in chapter 14, in chapter 15, in chapter 16. He's teaching us how we're to appropriate his crucifixion. Jesus calls to us in these three predictions. If you belong to me by faith, if I am your king, if I am your servant, if I am your son of man, what you find here happening changes your life in every single way. Here is the substance of your salvation in my work. Jesus is preaching. Here, these events form your identity. Here, come into these events and mind for yourself salvation and life and your health. Jesus is preaching. This belongs to you because of who I am. So we can say, who is the subject of the cross? Well, it's Jesus. He is the King of Israel, the servant of God, the Son of Man. And this brings us to our second matter that we need to consider, and that's the, the plan of the cross. And so as we think about the cross, as we consider the cross, the one word that should not come into our minds this morning is the word surprise. Simply put, as readers of Mark's gospel, we should not be surprised about what takes place in chapters 14, 15, and 16. And we have good reason not to be surprised. For as we travel with Jesus in these three chapters, chapters 8, 9, and 10, we learn on three different occasions what's going to happen to Jesus. He, he preaches to us, the Son of Man will suffer, he will die, and he will be raised on the third day. So as we look at these passages, it's, it's clear that, that Jesus understood that there's a plan for his life. Now, as Jesus understood the plan for his life, he didn't understand it with a, a vague feeling or a hazy prediction. Sometimes we say, something bad is going to happen to me. I just feel it in my gut. Rather, Jesus knew the explicit plan for his life. In chapter 10, verse 34, Jesus gives us the exact details of what's going to happen to him. He says, they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. 
So we can see that Jesus understood that there was a plan for his life. And this should raise a question in us. Well, where did Jesus get this knowledge from? Or more precisely, where did this plan for Jesus' life originate? We find an answer in the first passion prediction. We can go back to Mark chapter 9, verse 31, and Mark records this about Jesus. Mark says, And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. We have to key in on this little phrase, the Son of Man must. What Jesus is saying here is that all that's going to take place in Jerusalem, all that's going to take place on the cross is the will of God for him. In a very real way, what Jesus is saying is that he is a a man under orders to go to the cross. We could even say, heightening this expression, Jesus understood that he was predestined to the cross. The Son of Man must suffer many things. And throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus shows us that he is a man completely devoted to the will, to the plan of God. One factor determined his course of life all the time, and that was the plan, the will of God. Just think about it. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by Satan, he remained true to the will of God. When he was tempted by his disciples to pander to the crowds, the crowds are looking for you, they say. Jesus remains true to the will of God. When he's tempted by the scribes and the Pharisees as they're baiting him in their questions, he remained true to the will of God. And when he was tempted to divert from the cross, what did he do? Well, he remained true to the will of God. On the night of his betrayal, we find Jesus praying this, and this makes everything clear. Jesus says, yet not what I will, but what you will. And from this, we are led to say that the cross, above all things, is the will of God. It's the plan of God for the life of Jesus, for the life of the Son. And we have to let this settle in on us. Because as we read the gospel accounts, we can attribute many factors that led Jesus to the cross. We can ask, well, why did Jesus go to the cross? We can say, well, he taught some controversial things. You can ask, well, why did Jesus go to the cross? Well, he ticked off some pretty powerful people, the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They didn't like him, and they had it out for him. Why did Jesus go to the cross? Well, while Rome had a desire to snuff out rising political opponents. But when we consider Jesus' words, the Son of Man must suffer many things, we cannot give any of these reasons ultimacy. Ultimately, why did Jesus go to the cross and die? Well, Jesus says, it's the will of God for my life. He prays, yet not what I will, but what you will. And as we consider this truth, this is the truth that the disciples needed to know and get down into their hearts as they approached the cross. Jesus is preaching to his men in these, these passion predictions. He's saying something like this. Everything that will happen to me from my betrayal to the unjust and, and crooked trial that I will undergo to the flogging and mocking that I will receive even to the very last breath that I will draw was planned and predetermined according to the good pleasure of God. Jesus preaches to his men what you will see in the coming days even down to the smallest of details is no accident. It's no surprise. It's no plan B. Rather, it is the unfolding will of the sovereign of God. And I'm obedient to it. And when we leave the gospel accounts, it should be no surprise to us that after Jesus' resurrection and his ascension into heaven, we find the church digesting these passion predictions. 
So we can go to the book of Acts and we can ask, well, what did Peter preach in his Pentecost sermon? Well, Jesus, Peter stood up and he preached Jesus to the crowds and he, and he preached that the cross was the will of God, he says. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. What is Peter saying? Well, he's saying that, that God planned the cross. God foreordained it. He brought it about. And we can move on in the book of Acts. The, the church is, is suffering. They're being persecuted by Jewish leaders. And, and what fact, what truth do they take comfort in when they're being persecuted? Well, they comfort themselves in the fact that the cross was the will of God. We find this prayer in their prayer meeting. They're, they're crying out. They say, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The church looks at all of these different things going on in the Passion story. They look at the peoples of Israel as they cried out against Jesus. They look at the the Gentiles. They look at Pontius Pilate and Herod who led these trials. The church says, this was all the hand of God. He had predestined this and he brought it about. And what was the truth that encouraged and gave joy to Paul's heart? Well, he found joy in the eternal plan of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7, Paul rejoices. He says, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. What Paul's saying is this message makes me, me so happy. I am preaching the crucified Son of God. And he says, God decreed it before the ages. And brothers and sisters, this is the very truth that Jesus wants to get down into our souls in these passion predictions. The Son of Man must suffer many things, and we have to consider it precious news to get down into our souls. We, we preach the cross, we sing of the cross, we, we hope in the cross, we trust in the cross, because God ordained it, and he set it apart for us as our chosen portion. We do not entrust ourselves to an accident. We do not entrust ourselves to plan B. We do not entrust ourselves to human hands or human plans. No, we entrust ourselves to the sovereign plan of God. And this is such good news to bank your life upon, because Jesus is preaching a message of assurance to us. Jesus is saying, this is no mistake. This is not randomly happened. But God ordained it. He brought it about with his hands. And he preaches, this is God's portion for your life. Bank your life on what God has brought about. So we're making progress this morning. We can say, Jesus is the subject of the cross. And he is the subject of the cross. Why? Because it's God's plan. This brings us to a third matter to consider, and it's the activity of the cross. And so when we look at Jesus' passion predictions, they they reveal in explicit detail the activities that are going to take place. So we go to chapter 8, verse 31, and Jesus says, The Son of Man will suffer many things. He'll be rejected by the elders and the chief priests. We move forward to chapter 9, verse 31. Jesus says, The Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of men. In chapter 10, verses 33 and through 34, Jesus tells us that he will be condemned, he will be mocked, spat upon, and flogged. We find the activity of the cross, and and these details that Jesus gives us are worthy of our sustained reflection. Jesus is telling us that he's going to suffer bodily. 
His flesh is going to be scourged. His body will be beaten. All the more his life will be exacted from him. And not only will Jesus suffer bodily, but we find that Jesus will suffer emotionally. He's going to be rejected by his own people, his own kin. He's going to be cast aside to the unbelieving Gentiles where he's going to be mocked and spat upon. What we find in the crucifixion account is is shame upon shame upon shame is heaped upon the shoulders of Jesus as he's mocked and derided again and again. While these are all gruesome realities we need to consider, there is embedded in Jesus' words another reality that he will suffer something far greater than the scourging of his flesh or the shame of mocking. Jesus will actually suffer the wrath of God. We can look at chapter 9, verse 31 again. Jesus says, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Chapter 10, verse 33, he says, The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. So a very basic meaning as we look at these two texts, it's it's charting out the the trial process of Jesus' life. What's going to happen to Jesus in the Passion account? Well, Judas is going to betray Jesus to the religious leaders. Judas is going to hand him over to the Jews. And then the Jews are going to run some trials, and after that, they're going to hand Jesus over to the Gentiles. But we have to understand, if we want to get to the heart of the cross, there's a deeper meaning to these words. And we can only understand the deeper meaning when we go around and dig in the Old Testament. So we have to understand this morning that to be delivered over, these words that we find in chapter 9, verse 31, and in chapter 10, verse 33, come from a, a, a covenantal context. They're a covenantal phrase. And so we find these words showing up in Leviticus chapter 26. In Leviticus chapter 26, the Lord comes to his people and he's addressing them about life in the covenant. If they obey the covenant, they're going to receive blessings. But if they disobey the covenant, they're going to receive wrath. And so we find these words. The Lord is speaking to his people. He says, But if you will not listen to me, and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes, And if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. So following this are a list of covenant sanctions that the Lord is going to put upon his people. There's a lot of them here. And in the midst of all these covenant sanctions, these punishments the Lord is going to bring to his disobedient people, the Lord says this, I myself will devastate the land." And I will scatter you, or we could retranslate, I will deliver you among the nations, and I will unseed the sword after you, and your land shall be a desolation, and your cities shall be a waste. So what is Leviticus 26 saying? It's saying this, if if Israel breaks covenant wholesale against the Lord, what is the Lord going to do? Well, the Lord's going to deliver them in his wrath, going to hand them over in his wrath to the nations, to those who hate them. We have to understand that the threat that we find in Leviticus 26 is not an idle one. We come to Psalm 106, verse 40, and the, and the psalmist picks up on Leviticus 26 and teaches us that this actually happened to God's people. The psalmist says this, Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his heritage. What did he do? Well, he gave them into the hand of the nations. He delivered them into the hand of the nations so that those who hate them rule over them. And so what do we find in Psalm 106, verse 40? We find that Israel broke covenant with the Lord. 
They broke the words that the Lord gave them in Leviticus 26. And what did the Lord do? Well, in his wrath, he handed them over to the nations. And so when we return to Jesus' words, we, we begin to find their depth. Jesus pronounces, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. He again says, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. We really have to key in on this phrase, and they will deliver him over to the Gentiles. But Jesus is saying the very covenant curses that threatened Israel in Leviticus chapter 26, even more the very covenant curses that fell upon disobedient Israel in Psalm 106, are now going to fall directly upon his own shoulders. Jesus understood that at the end of the day, his cross was not simply a miscarriage of justice or a great tragedy or an example to show love, but an event where he would actually directly enter into the wrath of God. And it's here that we can make sense of the crucifixion of Jesus. We've seen throughout the gospel, Jesus meets the needs of people. Jesus fed the hungry. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He cast out demons. But here at the cross, Jesus meets our most fundamental needs, our guilty state before God. And Jesus does this by bearing the curse of God in our stead. At the cross, we see Jesus delivered over to the wrath of God for our sake. Instead of the covenant curses falling upon us and destroying us, they fall upon the shoulders of the righteous Son of God. Jesus is preaching to us. He says, when you enter into chapter 14, 15, and 16, don't get confused by all of the details. There's something profound happening here. Well, you see the crowds crying out against me. Well, you see my betrayal from Judas. Well, you see this unjust trial. While you see me before Pilate and Herod, there's something going on here. I'm being delivered over to the wrath of God. I am standing in your stead. This is how forgiveness works. This is the heart of the gospel. So we can return again to how we began this sermon. We can ask, well, what is this cross all about? What is the meaning of the cross? What was achieved at the cross? And our, our Lord has instructed us this morning. He has given us this authoritative manual for understanding the cross. And we have no excuse to be confused or bewildered when we enter into chapters 14, 15, and 16. The truth is plain for us. Jesus preaches to us, I go to the cross as your representative. And I go to the cross according to the will of God. Even more, I go to the cross with the express purpose to endure the wrath of God for sinful people like you. That's what Jesus is teaching us. And as we consider Jesus' words this morning, we, we must not stop at just the intellectual level. We're making all of these connections between the Old Testament and the New. We're plodding around... But if we really get to these passages, they have to melt our hearts. Why? Because they meet our deepest needs. And what Jesus is doing this morning in these passionate accounts is he's, he's calling us, as he's called us throughout the Gospel of Mark, he's saying, believe and repent in the Gospel. He's saying, won't you entrust yourself to me? And what Jesus desires this morning is that we would take these three passion predictions these instructions that Jesus gives us and place them close to our hearts, that we would apply them to our hearts again and again. Jesus desires that we would look at these passion accounts and say, there goes my king. There goes the one who has served me. There goes the son of man to whom I belong. And there he goes according to the plan of God. This is the portion for my life. 
And there he goes fulfilling my most basic fundamental need. He is atoning for my sin. So as we think about application, John Newton, the great hymn writer, we know him for his, his hymn, Amazing Grace. He, he wrote a lot of hymns. And he wrote this hymn about the cross. And, and the title of his hymn is so helpful because it, it, even the title teaches how we are to appropriate, how we are to apply the cross. His title is this, It is Good to Be Here. That ought to be our response this morning after hearing Jesus' preaching. We ought to say, it is good to be here. Then he goes on to write in this hymn. He says, let me dwell on Golgotha. Weep and love my life away while I see him on the tree. Weep and bleed and die for me. That dear blood for sinners spilt shows my sin and all its guilt. Ah, my soul, he bore thy load. Thou hast slain the Lamb of God. Hark his dying word. Forgive, Father, wipe thy tears away. I thy ransom freely pay. While I hear this grace revealed and obtain a pardon sealed, all of my soft affections move, weakened by the force of love. Newton is so helpful for us. We do not simply find intellectual answers, but we find the truth that we need. So we ought to say, it is good to be here. And then we ought to say, this is the command of the gospel, let me dwell on Golgotha. Weep and love my life away. And when we dwell on Golgotha, something happens to us. Grace is revealed to us. All the more we are weakened by the force of love. And then something amazing happens all of our affections begin to move. We begin to love. We begin to trust. We begin to live. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we, we do give thanks. You are a God of mercy and compassion. You are God of steadfast love, and we see it in the cross. As your son goes for us, according to the, the great plan to endure the wrath of God, what glory we find here, our salvation. We pray now, press this in upon our hearts. Move our affections. Weaken us by the force of love. May we be a people who weep and love our lives away. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.